Sir Alper and the Team One of Brass. I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio, from scouting the Sally from the pages of Fangraphs itself, and uh, most recently from the outskirts of Atlanta, Georgia, is prospect analyst Mike Newman. In what follows, Newman and I discuss some of the philosophical underpinnings of prospect analysis, in particular what he uh, refers to as setting your prospect or scouting compass. Newman talks about the importance for a prospect analyst of having ample exposure to Major League Baseball players to remember what it is they're comparing prospects against. Moving on, we consider how to properly think about teenage Latin American signings, remembering that such prospects could spend upwards of eight years in a minor league system and still have a totally reasonable chance of becoming Major League regulars. And finally, I get from Newman a list of the players that he's excited to see this year and for which player specifically he's prepared to make a four-hour drive. It's Mike Newman, it's Fangraphs Audio, and it begins right now. I was on, I really enjoyed talking kind of process stuff with you because it was totally different yeah. than the other podcasts I've done. And a lot of the stuff I've been doing since I got home, and, and I've, I've actually been having some trouble putting it into words for like Fangraphs pieces, mm-hmm. but, I, but I'm trying to think through like the process first, um, how dangerous it is to be at a place like spring training with the whole concept of small sample size. Like, there are really good prospects that I saw that I didn't like at all because I saw, like, one at bat or, like, two ground balls. You know what I mean? And it's just kind of how dangerous that is. And then the other part is just having, for for being a prospect guy, kind of having the compass set correctly because you see big leaguers and you see how easy they make a look and how fantastic they are. And then it makes you think that a lot less minor leaguers that you see are actually ever going to be big leaguers. Well, that is interesting to have, um, I guess, a, a, a yeah, I think a, a compass is an interesting way to look at it, but just any sort of gauge um, yep. so, so you can sort of reset your levels. Um, because now, um, of course, you do most of your, your prospect work uh, at um, in, the, in the, the South Atlantic League, which is low A, is that right? Yeah, but I've I've kind of been since moving to Atlanta, I've changed. Um I probably do like a third a third a third. Um I do the Rome Braves now, which which is South Atlantic League. Um I go up to Chattanooga quite a bit, which is Southern League. Which is I'll go across to Double A Southern League. Double A. Yeah. Yeah, I'll go across to Gwinnett, which is Triple A, uh international. And then I even get a smattering of, of Georgia Tech. ACC baseball when there are, you know, first-round draft picks in play. That's where I saw um, Danny Holtzman before he got drafted and Joe Panic first, Jed Bradley, and uh, I got to see a handful of first-rounders uh, in the college ranks around here. Now, um, uh, am I mistaken in thinking that uh, South Carolina, uh, are they part of the ACC? South Carolina is actually part of the SEC, the Southeast Conference. Oh, Okay. Uh, well, then this question is irrelevant. But I know that they're a really good college team that has not necessarily very many actual prospects on it. Yeah, what you get a lot of times is you get 
you know, colleges that produce really good baseball players, but they may not be so prospect heavy. Um, because what happens is when you're a college program and there are college programs that sign, you know, nine guys in a draft class, but six of them sign in the top three rounds. Well, then you're left with a bunch of guys you, you know, you're left with three studs, but you're filling in with guys that were maybe down your list where there are other college programs that will just take guys that may not be as highly touted, like maybe these guys went in the 12th round or the 18th round or the 20th round and wound up going to college for three years. So, you know, it's a different kind of dynamic, you know? Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, let, let's, let's, let's talk about this idea because I know um, um, this idea of resetting your levels. Um, so they're sort of uh, calib- calibrated. So they're calibrated uh, correctly for, for being able to assess a player's, well, players, I guess, um, current level, uh, his, his overall future potential, and, and then um, um, and setting all of that relative to, to what you know a major leaguer looks like. Um, because I think this is an idea, I don't know if it occurred to you um, exactly when you were in Arizona, but you were certainly talking about it in Arizona, but maybe we could talk about uh, how it started to come to you, and that will kind of give us a, uh, an entry point for the conversation. Well, you know, when I first started writing about prospects, um, one of my first scouting contacts was basically talking to me uh, about it, and um, they had done some writing as well at one point, and basically said, you know, you're seeing a lot of South Atlantic League games and low minor league games living where you are in Savannah, but, you know, it's really important for you to start seeing more major league games at some point, too, so you can properly set your prospect compass and know that when you're really looking at a big leaguer because at the time you know in the south atlantic league like really good velocity is 93 and i'd see a smattering of radar gun readings higher than that but 93 was pretty much the point where that separated like the men from the boys and if i can interrupt briefly sorry uh, what what would average be i mean what would be you're like yeah that's average for the sally league i mean it, it all depends. I mean, the South Atlantic League does have a lot of young teenage prospects who can get it up to 93, 94. I've seen up to 96 in the South Atlantic League. But what you also have is you have a large number of college draft picks, those kind of fringe right-handers that throw 88, 89, but have a decent secondary offerings. You know, so I would probably say 90, 91. Um, I would really start paying attention when a guy could touch 93 and higher. And, of course, this was kind of in my infancy in doing this. So I was, um, you know, you still have to have velocity, but I was so into velocity then that maybe I overlooked. Well, I did overlook some guys who were softer throwers that are now, you know, pitching in the bigs. So that's something that I really learned from. But, you know, that whole prospect compass was was basically he was basically saying well you know once you get to double a pretty much every guy on a roster can touch 94 95 if they choose to and then you go watch a major league game like being out in arizona that very first day i was there when everybody was coming in i was by myself over in peoria watching the padres and the giants and anthony bass was pitching and he's a guy that i'm trying to write about and put in words right now because he was fascinating to me because his numbers were kind of stinky in about 
50 innings last year. I mean, his ERA was nice, but all the peripherals were pretty poor. And I wasn't expecting a guy that could throw 94 at will with like a slider that was 86 to 88 miles per hour. And I just wasn't expecting that kind of stuff from a guy that was such a fringe um, big leaguer right now. So it kind of got me thinking about all the pitchers that I've scouted and saying, well, I've called lesser pitchers big leaguers, but if he's a fringe big leaguer, you know, do I need to tweak what I thought about those guys? You know what I mean? Yeah, well, you want, I mean, I understand, um, and I imagine this is part of it, that when you're, when you're uh, thinking about a guy, um, you know, watching his stuff, um, scouting him, you're, and you become familiar with him, and, and, and of course, at the same time, in a writerly sense, you're trying to find ways to articulate him. Um, you know, articulate what he's doing. You would naturally. It seems like you would naturally be enthusiastic about him. That se- that seems like it would be natural. And I, I wonder. I mean, it, do you feel like that's part of it? Do you feel like that's part of why um, you might have an urge to to play up a guy? Just a, it's a, a familiarity with him and the fact that you are, you know, learning about him. And you know, I, I think the more you see a guy, the more familiar obviously you do become, and the more you get used to. Uh, pitcher especially and you know what they're going to do so there have been guys that i've uh scouted that the more i saw them the more i liked them i think the interesting dynamic is the fact that so many times when i write about a guy the perception that readers have is like the polar opposite of what i'm trying to relay like on twitter i get so many things like you really loved so-and-so when you wrote about him a year ago um, what do you think now? And I look back at the piece, and there were just as many negatives as there were positives, probably more negatives, because so many more players you know, fail than make it to the big leagues. And I, I find myself wondering, like, where did this person get this idea that I wrote this fantastic report on a guy? You know what I mean? So um, I, I think in trying to be fair when you write about a player and the positives and the negatives, but sometimes even if you like a guy, it winds up coming across as much more negative because the rate of failure is just so high. Now, we're, we're talking uh, about pitchers almost exclusively so far. Uh, I'm curious um, I'm curious how this, how this applies to pitchers or to hitters. Well, I mean, it's, it's, in some ways it's the same thing. Um, you know, you... you watch hitters and I and I think in the time that I've been out seeing players I've seen more top flight pitchers than I have hitters um, and I can't be exactly sure why I know this the South Atlantic League is known as a strong pitchers league and uh, I know the Southern League is known as a pretty strong pitchers league as well but you know I find myself seeing a lot more guys that that throw 95 than actually project for plus power stuff like that I mean when when I go through a year and I'm seeing three, four, five, six pitchers that are in all the top 50s and maybe one or two hitters, it kind of maybe skews my my view a little bit. But, um, you know, with hitters in general, I'd say that power um, is a really hard thing to project because you don't see that much of it. And um, the one question and the one thing that's still so sexy about baseball is the ability for a guy to hit balls over the fence. And 
every time I say, well, he looks like a 15-20 homer guy, uh, even if I think the guy's going to hit 350-360, which obviously nobody really does, but if I even said that, but then included 15 to 20 home runs, in some ways that's still going to be looked kind of as a negative on that player. You just don't see that much big power because there are very few guys these days uh, that have the ability to post those kind of numbers. Yeah. Well, I mean, I mean of course, that's, that's the case at the major leagues. Just generally speaking, we've seen home run rates go down. And I would wonder, too, I mean, is there, now you saw Xander uh, Bogarts down um, in the Sally League this year, but I wonder, is it possible that guys who, who uh, profile as having plus power, um, you, would they gravitate to, to a certain league or level um, you know, besides the Sally League? Well, I, I think a lot of it's going to depend on the age, obviously. I mean, in, in the Sally League in the last few years, I mean, Stanton has passed through. Uh, Bryce Harper has passed through. Bogarts has passed through. So you've had um, um, the Yankees catcher, Gary Sanchez, has passed through and posted nice power numbers. So you have had some really impressive power prospects pass through the league um, recently. It, it just so happens that there aren't that many of them. Like even the best hitters that I've seen, like Nolan Arenado or Jonathan Singleton, um, those are really fine hitting prospects, but you're just not seeing the power potential out of, you know, guys in general. So I don't think it's specific to a league. Obviously, in the Cal League, you're going to see inflated home run numbers, um, and uh, oftentimes, especially with with college hitters um, that go to the California League and just dominate. Uh, I can't tell you how many prospects I've seen in the South Atlantic League for like a San Francisco or a Colorado and they aren't very good at all in the South Atlantic League and they shoot out to California and all of a sudden they have a 25 home run season and everybody's putting them in their top 100 and I'm left scratching my head so that that's really kind of the outlier but you know age versus level plays such a factor in placement and and when you do see huge power numbers um, in league so many times it's because the guy's old for the level, and probably playing against competition that isn't quite as good as he is. Now, um, we know now, and this is not something, at least uh, not something that the sabermetric community has always known. Perhaps it's been um, 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 a truth within the scouting community. Uh, but we know now that um, pitchers, their velocity peaks super early. Um, and essentially gradually decreases. I mean, this is, this is, we're talking about a large population. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it might be different pitcher to pitcher, but generally speaking, uh, velocity peaks at a very young age, early 20s, um, and decreases steadily as pitchers get older. Uh, meanwhile, uh, hitters, we know that their power tends to spike um, when they reach physical maturity, which is t- about 27 to 30, somewhere in there. I'm curious, do, do you think that that somehow affects what you're seeing in terms of uh, the disconnect or, uh, between the, the quality of, of pitching you're seeing relative to the, the quality of hitting, especially uh, the power tool? You know, that's a great point. I mean, when, when you're seeing guys that are 18, 19 years old and you're trying to project true power out of a guy, it's, it's, it's not so much thinking about when power peaks versus that age. You know, you're looking for loft and backspin and 
swing plane and, and hand strength and wrist strength, and you're looking for um, tools and, and pieces of a player characteristics that will help you say, okay, this guy looks like he's going to hit this many home runs at, you know, full physical maturity. Um, you know, that, that's a really good point that you're looking at guys that are 27. And, and, and if you're looking at a guy that is fully physically mature at 27 or 30 and maybe that was going to be the peak power years, gosh, you know, you're looking at a guy at 18, 19 and, and um, who's Edward Salcedo for the Braves would be a perfect example. I mean, he's been very okay in a couple years after being a huge international free agent signing. And um, after two years watching him consistently, you know, you start to maybe sour on the power potential a little bit, but then he's 19, you know, and, and you figure a guy like that, his tools, he will stick around to see whatever that peak power potential is going to be, uh, unless he just decides to hang him up. So, um, it, it's fascinating. I think on the pitcher side, um, I think early on I started seeing a lot of pitchers when they were 18, 19 years old. And I was looking at guys, and, and the ones that were fully developed, like a um, J. Ruiz Familia with the Mets, and, and he was 92 to 94, and I wondered how much more was there because he was already an intimidating presence at 19. Well, there was more there because now he apparently touches 98. So, you know, I, I, it's all a learning process and seeing those young kids um, and, and a lot of it is, is you see a guy at 18 and then you monitor that progress. And, and what I appreciate most is the opportunity to see guys two and three times. Cause then you can see, like, how fast do the best prospects truly grow? Or, you know, how fast do okay prospects truly go? And that also helps set your compass and help you, helps project on the whole. You know what I mean? Yeah, you know, you mentioned an interesting thing there uh, with a player like Salcedo, or uh, Salcedo, who's uh, still quite young, um, but perhaps for whom the uh, the, the excitement or, um, has has dwindled a little bit. Um, you and I talked in Arizona about another player um, who, who who matches that description too, uh, who fits that description, and that is Jeffrey Marte. Um, a uh, a third base well a third base I guess in quotation marks uh, <laughs> uh, a prospect for the Mets who uh, who was also an international signing um, and was uh, you know, among um, the top ten prospects in the organization a couple years ago and, and um, despite the fact that I, I think he's only 21 maybe he's entering his 22 season he's um, he did not even make Baseball America's top 30. Uh, prospect list for the Met, and this is for the Mets, mind you. you yeah. know, this is not like uh, Padres system or you know Royals last year or anything like that. Um, I, I'm curious to what degree you see that. I mean, we're talking sort of we're we're talking process now, um, and and I should say as an aside, I, I'm gonna get I'm gonna try and uh, um, get some real names from you uh, pretty soon here, uh, but. But are you is that a thing that you see sometimes, like with a player like Salcedo, maybe like Marte, where you get a sort of post-hype situation, especially, I, w- I would wonder, with uh, international signings or, or also perhaps high school signings? Yeah, I mean, all the time you see guys that people have essentially forgotten about because they were signed at 17 or 18, and now they're 21 and they're not superstars yet. Well, you know, it just so happened that, it, that if a guy gets 
to the big leagues by 24, there's a pretty good shot that they're going to wind up being solid regulars at the big league level. So even if a guy like Marte, for example, uh, he's been, well, he's already been a Rule 5, so that means he spent four full years in the organization. He's been around a while already. He has an advance behind high A, um, had a great Arizona Fall League, but he's been around a while. He's got 1,500 professional at-bats now. Um, people eventually sour on that and go, you know, where's where's the production? Well, you know, Marte could spend three more, four more <laughs> full seasons in the minor leagues and still be the age of a solid regular at the big league level. I mean, that is why teams go out on the international market and sign guys at 16. They can log all those at-bats in an organization. It's why, um, you know, Rainey's work over baseball perspective, uh, well, I'm not, I'm not even sure if it, was, if it went live for BP. I know he used to work at BP, but um, his piece on high school hitters and, and Mike Trout and the age of high school hitters, the younger you get them into an organization, the better the opportunity they have to get good. Well, there's that's a... a, a much of that reason is because guys get in. The more bats, the more time, the more experience at an extremely young age, the higher that ceiling winds up being. So um, that happens all the time with these post-hype guys. Now, with, with regard to this idea of sort of recalibrating your your um, your scouting radar, I'm curious as to um, what sort of steps – you know, like what's a what's a process you could go through? I mean, was for you was seeing guys at spring training? Is that a way to kind of help you do that? Like seeing someone like Anthony Bass, who uh, may or may not have success at the major league level, but is also um, you know throwing uh, you know mid nineties um, with a decent slider. I mean, is that the way to do it? Is it you know is it for you? Is it going to Braves games? Is it watching games uh, closely on TV? How does that work? Well, I think one of the things, and, and this is one of the, the reasons I'm so, you know, fortunate to be writing in a place like Fangraphs is because now that I maybe have a little bit more access to, to big league teams than I did before, uh, in the ability to go to spring training and go onto the backfields and watch big leaguers and minor leaguers take batting practice together or, um, go to these, um, games and, and watch minor leaguers mix with big leaguers on a field the size of an A-ball field. So it, I found that, that the few days I spent out in Phoenix were completely enlightening in terms of watching guys, I mean, even watching the best guys. I mean, seeing Madison Bumgarner just be able to cut and, and fade fastballs to wherever he wanted to and almost just kind of seeing it out of the hand, like him being able to guide it at will. And then seeing Kershaw, um, who's arguably the best pitcher in baseball, face off against Martin Perez, who's one of the best left-handed prospects in baseball. And just see the difference between Kershaw being the best left-hander versus Martin Perez, who wants to be one of the best left-handers, <laughs> and seeing just the gap between a guy who's fantastic and already doing it and a guy who's trying to get there. And, and it, 
you know, that helped quite a bit. Um, seeing Matt Kemp next to everybody and just how big a, a man that guy is and, and how phenomenal his skill set is. And, and it makes you realize how tough it is to find a true, like, five-tool player at the big league level and um, how often that term is thrown around and how so many times it's just nonsense, you know? Um, when you see the best, it, it kind of makes you think about, and even when you see fringe, when you see okay, it, it makes you think about all the guys you've seen before, and, and especially when it comes to making comparisons. Um, you know, who could you possibly attempt, uh, compare at the minor league level to Matt Kemp? Nobody. <laughs> nobody. Uh, who could you compare to Kershaw? Uh, nobody. So it's it, it was just very enlightening um, seeing these fantastic baseball players, especially with the prospects being mixed in and, and seeing those guys face big league pitching for the first time and how they react. Well, well, I know uh, just uh, anecdotally and in, in from the point of view uh, for someone who's, who's interested uh, in the art of prospecting um, but has less experience with it, that I actually uh, – I'm um, – I got a great deal out of this spring watching a number of college baseball games. And I think this is something, uh, this is sort of something what you're talking about. Um, you know, having mostly, you know, most of my experience be with major league games, uh, to watch a college game in particular, uh, you really get a sense of, of the gap, I guess, the physical gaps. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and I, it almost, I almost felt chagrined at ever having, um, you know, been frustrated by or by a, like a shortstop who didn't make a who didn't make a certain play, because if you put no, because you know if you put a college guy in that same position, you know he's going to fail, you know like you know however much more often than that than that uh, than, you know than even you know than Willie Bloomquist or uh, yeah. you know Alexi Casilla who's probably stretched at shortstop uh, in the major leagues. You put him on a college diamond, then he's the he's the like the best player out there. Um, so to be a bad to be a bad major leaguer, you're probably still way better uh, than the best college player. Um, yeah, you're still a phenomenal, phenomenal baseball player. And you know, it, it's interesting because we were talking about Jeffrey Marte, and um, one of the same conversations I had, uh, one of the conversations I had with the same contact that I was talking to about the compass, said, "Well, you know, after Marte's 2009 season where he." was just terrible, like a walk rate under 5%. Um, his WOBA was like 282. I mean, he was miserable for third base. And I think I had, he had close to 60 errors. Couldn't have been a, possib- couldn't have been a worse full-season debut. And what, what the guy basically told me, well, you know, if he was in college and he was a freshman in college, that's like the equivalent to a 390 hitter. Oh yeah. So so you're looking at a full season guy because he'd only be a freshman in college. He was 18 at the time. So you know you make that comparison and go, well, what would this guy be on a college field? And you put a wood bat in a bunch of college guys' hands. You speed up the game. You face the more consistent velocity, and you're looking at apples and oranges. And that's what makes a guy like Bryce Harper so fantastic because he graduated high school a year early. And then, you know, he went to junior college when he should have been a senior in high school. And 
he was playing full season baseball when he should have been a freshman in college, you know, and the stuff that he's doing, I mean, he'd literally be a sophomore in college right now. Like, how amazing would that player be? <laughs> he would be good. He would be. Uh, I mean, he might, um, uh, you know, of course, uh, the last couple of years, college has had new bats, but, you know, that might be a situation where he's actually, uh, like, dangerous to opposing first basemen. Yeah, I think he'd always be. I think he's dangerous to opposing first baseman now. <laughs> as, yeah, as immediately. Um, he, uh, yeah, he's uh, he's still. Uh, I certainly got to see um, you know as much of them as much of him as there was to see this spring because uh, he was out with a with a calf thing and uh, it is fun when he goes to play. He loves to swing hard with, with the bat. He really likes swinging hard. Is one of his things. Yeah, but that's the beauty of it is because. Most guys can't swing that hard and make that kind of contact. Yeah. You know, like there are weird things about his swing. Like in general, if I saw a guy that, you know, Bryce Harper is pretty long in the back of his swing. I mean, you kind of see a loop in the back of his swing when it comes through. And in general, I'd see a guy like that and I'd go, man, how does he get his hands to the ball? How's he going to catch up to velocity? How's he going to, but there's not a question with him. He just does it, you know, and it's, remarkable to watch him on a baseball field and just how much he dwarfs guys that are three, four years his senior, you know? Now, yeah, I know. I know Mike Newman. I know. Listen, before you go, um, and I'm not, I'm not kicking you off right now, but I want, I want to get some names uh, from you. Um, and I guess I'm actually – I'd kind of like to look, look forward a little bit. Um, you, you mentioned all the teams uh, – that you they're going to have the uh, to be able to uh, enjoy this um, this upcoming season, you know, whether it's uh, whether it's Rome, uh, whether it's Gwinnett, Chattanooga, um, and I'm all sure, the teams coming in. Right, right, and of course, right, and all the teams coming. You got basically every league cover that that uh, has anything to do with that that region. I am curious about some names, um, and then the uh, the humans attached to those names. Uh, that you're excited to be seeing, that you're looking forward to seeing this year, uh, and and why? Well, I, I think the first two that obviously come to mind um, are potentially Dylan Bundy, who comes within 200 miles of me once this season, if he is with the Delmarva Shorebirds. And Bundy was the first-round draft pick, all-world Baltimore Orioles prospect. Um, and, and there's actually a chance he could start in high a so if he does start in low a um he might open his career in Asheville, which is a couple hundred miles away and i would go and and travel to go see that start and try and make a weekend of it so i mean dylan bundy would be a huge get um josh bell with west virginia the pirates second round pick who signed for five million uh, who probably would have been a top 15 guy easily had he um been an easier sign he um, really good power hitter young power hitter um, probably the best hitter in the Pirates organization right now uh, definitely the best hitter in the uh, hitting prospect in the Pirates organization right now uh, he would also be a huge get as well um, the Charleston Yankees come in uh, Rome's first series opens up against Charleston and and that Charleston Yankees team with Mason Williams and Dante Bichette's kid, um, Angelo Guns, Cito Culver, who was a first-round pick. I mean, that team 
has a lot of very good prospects on the rise. I don't know if they're going to have any elite guys yet. Um, but oh, Jose Campos, the guy, the the prospect the Yankees received in the Pineda deal, uh, should be there as well. And, and if Gary Sanchez is back, that's just icing on the cake. He right, may well, be back. Okay, Newman, on that's a, a little bit. It's a lot of names. Let's go back to Bundy. Um, Bundy out of Oklahoma. Um, I think he was, uh, was he the fourth overall pick this most recent draft? Yes. Uh, uh, apparently has like plus everything already, um, in terms of, in terms of pitches. Um, what is the excitement surrounding him? And follow up question, how will the Orioles screw it up? Well, <laughs> I think the first thing is the incitement is when you take a guy who is just so young but so well-developed and mature both physically and in terms of his maturity and his stuff. I mean, he is he is just about as perfect a combination as you'd want in a um, pitching prospect. I mean, there's not anything close to a sure thing in terms of any pitching prospect. But the, his combination of, of ceiling plus floor um, is just fantastic. So, you know, it's not that often I get to see pitchers that are that legitimately have the chance to be special. And one of the things about going to scout pitching at a baseball game is that you at least know you're going to see one guy worth scouting. <laughs> um, well, that's a know, good point. I mean, that's a good point for watching any sort of game, right? Um, yeah. And actually, Cameron, uh, Dave Cameron wrote a piece about this this offseason that I, I failed to mention earlier um, in the conversation, but I think it had a lot to do uh, – I, I think it's relevant to what we were talking about um, earlier. Is He was sort of um, – I guess you might call it a thought piece. He was wondering why it is that – you know even with what we know about pitcher attrition, um, even top pitching prospects, just because of the, the likelihood of injury, um, why is it that you still find so many pitchers uh, you know, near the tops of, of prospect lists? And yeah. one theory he had, and I, it, to me it's interesting theory, if it doesn't necessarily explain this phenomena, it's still an interesting um, sort of thought experiment, is that pitchers are easy for the, for the reason you're mentioning. Pitchers are easier to scout, you know, you, you when you see, when you watch a pitcher, you could see him for five six innings. Yeah. Um, and that's you know that could be that could be eighty pitches. When you watch mm-hmm. a hitter, you know maybe you get six pitches, and you know yeah. maybe out of those six pitches you get three swings. Well, you know it was the same thing. You know, there's such a danger. As much as I love being out in Phoenix, I, I wasn't out there enough because there's such a danger in small sample size being out there. You know, I. I saw Brad Peacock throw two innings, and I saw him throw 30, 40 pitches, and, and Martin Perez. And, you know, that gave me a pretty good idea of what they looked like. Uh, they were throwing the curveball, throwing the changeup, working on everything. You know, you see a couple innings of that, and then it's like I saw one at bat by Michael Choice. I saw batting practice and one at bat from Mike Gold. I saw one at bat from Jed Jerko, and I didn't see him field the ball. So the you're absolutely right in that you do get such a good opportunity, even if you see a pitcher only once and they don't have their best stuff. You can at least maybe see a glimpse of the best stuff. 
and project or, or take a look based off that. Of course, it's always the more looks, the better. But, um, you know, I, I found Phoenix to be so dangerous in terms of pulling ideas off of, especially hitters, off of such a small sample size because all you have to go on is that first impression. And that first impression from a pitcher um, will often be a much better one. Yeah. Or a much, you know, well, maybe much better one in terms of, um, you know, what you see and how good, how pertinent you feel the information is. All right, last uh, last thing before I let you go and before I eat my dinner. Um, my, What's for dinner tonight? We uh, we're having a pesto. Uh, my wife uh, uh, will make pestos with some frequency, and it's a lemon parsley. Uh, pesto, I guess. Maybe one other thing in it that I'm forgetting. Uh, lem- lemon parsley what? Never made it yet. She, she tells me she hasn't made it yet. But, uh, I mean, it's because I'm going to help because I'm a 21st century man. Mike Newman, I don't, you know, absolutely what, are. I don't know what you're trying to imply. By... No, I was I was curious. And speaking of pesto, I mean, we just spent all weekend planting a garden. So I, I can 21st century man right there with you. Boom, right there. You got some... Uh, you got some basil in that garden, or, or uh, what are you doing in that? You know what, basil basil was sold out. Um, my uh, wife spent the entire weekend, because we're city folk at heart, and living where we are now, we're not used to all this woods. My wife claims she is living in upstate New York, but I don't believe her. Um, but we did some of those, like, four-by-four four boxes and planted all types of southern vegetables, and we, we have some herbs going more um, mint leaves for me to make mojitos. Oh uh, yeah, than, well that's important. Basil. I mean it, priorities, Mike Newman. That's what that's what that's the name of the game. Definitely priorities. Um, okay, so but uh, before we go though, I'm going to ask you probably uh, what I'm going to guess is probably going to be the um, most difficult question you'll be asked. Um, 2012 probably, and that is I want from you prediction. Higher career war. Higher career war, Mike Newman. Vince Catricala, third base prospect for the Mariners. Vince Catricala, or second base prospect for the San Diego Padres, Vince Belnome. I can't believe you're pulling this out. Yeah. Two guys that, like... See, this is the hard thing because I haven't I haven't really seen any of these guys. So anything that I say, I'm asking for wild. Away. I'm asking for wild guesses. That's what I need. With a, with a complete grain of salt. Um, um, you know what? I'm going to take Katrakala. Okay. For the simple reason that he is going to have more of a chance. That team is so horrendous hitting. They're going to throw him out there. And they're going to let him swing the bat, kind of like what they're doing with Mike Carp. And I, Katrakala may be able to hit kind of like Carp does. Okay. And that will earn playing time in such a horrible organization. As far as Belnome, um, I'm not sure, uh, at least from what I've heard and what I've read, there's no guarantee he sticks at second base. And if that is the case, there is no shot in Hades. He's going to win a job over Headley, Jerko, and Darnell. That's just not going to happen. They do so. have a lot of uh, fringe second, third base type of guys. They do, and I just don't know how 
Vincent is going to jump all those guys, especially because my very brief look at Jonathan Galvez, who's a second-base prospect below um, Belnome, was a good one. So, and, and he actually does have some tools. So there's right. a chance. And, of course, that's not that to even – we're ignoring uh, Corey Spangenberg too. We are. Yeah. We are totally. Uh, so they have so many guys there. Uh, if Belmele is going to break through and play somewhere, it's probably going to have to be somewhere else. Yeah. Yeah. I saw. Um, I did see Jonathan Galvez. Uh, he was. He had the most Jonathan Galvezy sort of game, and and also the exact sort of game you would expect from a sort of raw uh, Latin American prospect in that. In his first plate appearance, he hit a giant home run, just massive. Um, and then he uh, struck out swinging wildly in his next two plate appearances. Fantastic. Yeah. And but, I love those guys. And yeah, I totally but, want those guys. He, uh, but he just, uh, he, uh, humped up all over a ball and he deposited it deep in left field. Yeah. And, uh, and Zips projects him for 11 home runs this year. Well. I mean, you know, but if you look at home run per <laughs> per ball he makes contact with, it's probably pretty strong. Yeah, yeah. And uh No, I, I, I liked him quite a bit, but you know, it, it was it was a great time out there. I, I couldn't have enjoyed meeting everybody more. But I wish we would have had more time to talk. We didn't get to talk that much. It is um it is uh yeah, it's uh, there's a lot of action in a short amount of time. Um, there is, and I'm very jealous that you're heading down to Jupiter. Yeah, I uh, yeah, I'll be there next week, and uh, I'll hopefully uh, get out in the backfields. And um, it looks like what happens there is, uh, it, you know, with the Marlins and Cardinals, they sort of rotate playing each other, and then the Mets come, uh, Mets minor league teams come in like every other day. Well, like I mentioned, it's a they're kind of Jupiter's kind of out on an, uh, an island. They're pretty far away from everybody else, so. You know, you're looking at St. Lucie, and um, but you know, you'll probably get a game there every single day because you'll see either the Marlins or the Cardinals come in. Yeah, yeah, it's still probably it's it's actually uh, um, it uh, it's it works out because my grandfather lives there. Uh, oh, nice. Yeah, so uh, so I get to spend time with him and then uh, uh, go over during the sort of late morning and, and early afternoon over to Roger Dean. Uh, see some baseball, and then, uh, you know, go have dinner at 4 p.m. with my grandfather. That is fantastic. Yeah. And, then, you know, I don't know if they have any night games there. It would be nice if they did, though. It did, yeah. Well, he's not going to make it to the night games. He doesn't. Uh, he'll fall asleep in front of the television at 8.30. And then, like, you know, he'll wake up, like, every uh, 20 minutes, kind of look around drowsily, make, <laughs> make sure everything's fine, and go back to sleep on, on the couch. You know, so he's, he's, not, he's, like, he's a watchdog. Yeah, I mean, he has a 91-year-old watchdog. He, that's even old in dog years. Yeah. That is old in dog years. Yeah, yeah. Um, although, although I have a, a dog that's 98 right now, so... Well, that's pretty good. Years. Yeah, that's pretty good. Is he is he retired? He is, and he, like, sleeps all day. It's amazing. Yeah. But any critter out in the yard, he'll, he'll be active for, like, 30 seconds, and then he just passes back out again. Yeah, do you? Um, Cause you're, I think you're from the, uh, you're from Brooklyn originally, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Now, the thing about uh, Georgia, I, I, maybe it's less the case in Atlanta than it is in the outlying burgs, 
but um, it does seem like there's an insect situation going on down there. Well, Savannah was horrible. I mean, Savannah, you were there, and you try and take your kid to the park in, like, March, and you get there, and you'd be there for 10 minutes and start getting eaten by the gnats. When people go to Savannah, they don't tell you about the gnats. Well, they're literally called, the team's called the sand gnats, aren't they? Yeah, they're called the sand gnats. And you think, oh, you know, they're little no-seams, they don't bother anything. But those things literally, like, bite you. Like, I'll go scout at a Savannah game and pick up my camera to shoot some video, and they will be swarming around my arms. So they're nasty, nasty things. But where we live now... Um, in the Atlanta area, the bugs aren't nearly as, as much of a problem, although, you know, we still get mosquitoes the size of fighter planes and, and stuff like that. The things that we have here living near the woods is we have scorpions. That is so ridiculous. We, what we, does... get, we get little brown scorpions. No, you don't. Yeah, yeah, we do. We get little brown scorpions that run around. When we first moved in, the first conversation I had with a neighbor I'm like, what do we have to watch out for here? Because we've never lived kind of near the woods before. And he's like, well, you know, just train your kids not to touch the scorpions. Yeah. I mean, no one would have to train me not to touch a scorpion, but that is ridiculous. I mean, it, it it's a scorpion? like a. Yes. Yes. They're little. They're like maybe an inch long, and they're brown. And they kind of blend into everything. And a lot of times you see them just, like, walking around by your door. Uh, yeah, and they're, they're scorpions, legit scorpions. And that they will is... sting you. They won't kill you, but they'll sting you, and it won't feel good. Um, I, I have family in uh, Alabama, and I know that one time um, I w- we were visiting a, a, friend, of, a friend of theirs, and uh, everyone was outside, I was inside, and I ran outside, and everyone was sort of looking at me as I was running towards them, and I turned around to see what they were looking at, and there was a uh, copperhead, uh, a copperhead snake, sort of ensconced, like right at the bottom of one of the steps. And I had walked right over it. Oh that, wow! That's terrifying. But what about snakes? Do you have snakes there? Yes, we do. Um, we absolutely do. We have four kinds of venomous snakes here, and uh, the copperheads are actually the good ones to get near if you're going to get near a snake, because those guys are kind of shy. Uh, to my understanding, and they won't really bother you unless you, like, aggressively try and bother it. But we do have snakes. I mean, I'll, I'll take the kids out in the woods in the winter, but once it gets to be spring-summer, we don't mess around there all that much. But we get, you know, deer in the woods, and yeah, we well, hear deer. coyotes yeah, all the time. Deer. Deer. What's a deer yeah. going to do? That doesn't do anything. Yeah. No, no, we get deer, we get coyotes. Yeah, that's um, fine. That's fine. I'm talking about you have We get venomous, venomous snakes, yes. Yeah, that's ridiculous. Absolutely. And there, you know, it's, it's, uh, well, that's what you get, man. It's, it's a trade-off. Um, you know, the big thing we're enjoying this spring, we, we have, uh, an owl's nest. So we see those guys kind of like dive bombing and doing their thing and hawks dive bombing and doing their thing and trying to get all the critters that live out back. So, uh, that's been fun. It's, it's nice living here. We couldn't, we, you know, we can't complain. We don't miss the city one bit. Yeah. I'm sure you could complain if pressed. We can complain about what? I said you could you could probably complain if pressed. Well, I can kind of complain about everything. That's yeah. kind of what I've what I'm known you for convince, in yeah. some respects. But you know, um, no, I, I can't complain whatsoever. I just wish, you know, the only thing I can complain about is that you know everybody in Phoenix. All I did is kind of roll my eyes the whole time because everybody was complaining. Oh, I got to drive 45 minutes to a ballpark, and like my shortest drive's an hour to a ballpark. 
and literally every ballpark in Phoenix is within 45 minutes of each other. Yeah. So I didn't understand what everybody was complaining about. Like it felt like a really short drives to me. Yeah. Even though I made pretty long trips to parks. Yeah, don't let those guys get you down. Well, listen, uh, Mike Newman, it's uh, as as it, it generally is. Uh, it's been a pleasure. It's been a pleasure to talk with you. Well, it's been great talking with you, Carson. I always uh, enjoy our time to be able to, I guess, dig a little deeper into stuff. Yeah, it's and you always you always put a a funky spin on it that that makes me really. I think you're probably talking about my body odor, but I'm going to let that pass. Yeah. Well, gonna... you know, I always try and I always try and keep up with the Fangrass guys because you guys are just all so much smarter, smarter and like. Mathier. Yeah, that's true. Stuff. Smarter and mathier. That's yep. Yes. That's that's our that's our slogan. Our <laughs> that slogan. is a pretty good smart. Smarter and mathier. Smarter and mathier. All right. That is uh, Mike Newman. I am in. Uh, we'll continue to be Carson Stooley, and this has been Fangraphs Audio. Thank you.